Due to the graphic nature of this urban legend, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes descriptions of illness, graphic injuries, and animal cruelty. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. You're alone, at midnight, in a house that's not your own. Perhaps you've been asked to guard the home's treasures, or maybe you took shelter from a storm. Perhaps you're clearing the place of ghosts in order to win the hand of the woman of your dreams. A black cat enters, dark as pitch, with yellow eyes that glitter in the candlelight. Another follows, bigger than a cat should be. They wait, watching you, and they let you know they're waiting. Another cat arrives, another, bigger and bigger, until a black beast the size of a tiger enters the room. But still, they wait, licking their lips, purring at the thought of their next meal. They hold their breath, you hold yours too. Then, their expected guest arrives, and the feast, begins. Welcome to Haunted Places, a podcast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, we take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth and share their stories. This episode is part of our Urban Legends Halloween special. Every day for the month of October, we're presenting our spooky spin on an urban legend, then diving into the history of the horror. Like it or not, each terrifying tale contains a grain of truth. You can find episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Haunted Places for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. Today, we explore a tale whose earliest iteration is older than the urban in urban legends, sometimes called the robber or the witch who was hurt, and sometimes called the severed hand. The spine-chilling fairy tale has infiltrated modern life thanks to a retelling prevalent in the American South. It features ominous animals, dismemberment, and a very troubled marriage the perfect disruption of domestic comfort. The narrative elements of The Witch Who Was Hurt are vast and varied, borrowing from both Germanic and Northern European folklore. It usually begins with a fairy tale premise. An enterprising young man faces a seemingly impossible task to guard a valuable object, solve the mystery of a haunted house, or to simply survive the night inside. 
He sees untold horrors within, but uses his composure and pragmatism to best them. In the morning, he discovers that not all is what it seems. The American version has the house's new tenant running away before the spirits and monsters truly reveal themselves, but the creatures he faces still evoke the story's old-world origins, while the shorter and more cowardly version of the tale has a strong punchline, the longer legend has a twist, straight out of a classic universal monster movie. Desperation is a tricky thing. It turns people into monsters. It makes us capable of things we never thought possible, for better and for worse. For Matthias, desperation had been seeping into his bones for years. He had first felt it when his father died. His father had always made enough money for their small family to live on. Not comfortably, but enough so they could repair their house when needed, and there was always a little food in the cupboard. Unlike many of the boys his age, Matthias had the luxury of freedom while his neighbors took on apprenticeships. Being a man can wait, his father had said. Get into a bit of trouble first. But without his father, the cupboards were bare. Matthias's mother, Irene, took on as many sewing projects as she could. She was fast at the task, but it took a toll on her body. Her hands would crack and bleed, sometimes getting stuck in a gnarled, fist-like position. Matthias would have to haul water into the house and set it boiling over their fireplace. Then, slowly, he would drag a damp bit of cloth over her wounds. Like magic, her paralyzed fingers would unstick and unclench. He'd wipe the blood from them, knowing that he'd be doing the same thing again the next day, and the day after that, and the day after that. There were only so many sewing projects in the village, and their food supply was ever dwindling. Luckily, Matthias managed to secure work as a farmhand. Sometimes he was able to take bruised and rotten fruit home for free. The produce would leak on the table like a festering wound, but their bodies needed any kind of nutrients that they could find. So they pushed off the discomfort, the twisting and churning of their intestines throughout the day. A little bit of pain was worth it. Then fate smiled on them. The village miller needed someone to guard the granary at night. If Matthias could handle the job, he would get several cups of flour at the end of his shift, in addition to his pay. His mouth watered at the thought of fresh baked bread. He hadn't had bread in years. Irene didn't like the idea. Matthias was by no means a bruiser, and the last boy on the night shift had ended up dead. No one knew what killed him. He'd been smiling and healthy before work that night, laughing with shopkeepers and flirting with eligible girls. They'd found his body just outside the granary. It had taken several days to even figure out that it was him. The village had initially thought the mangled corpse was perhaps a vagrant who had been attacked. His head had swollen to the point where his facial features were indistinguishable. Gaping pustules coated what used to be his hairline. Most of his hair had turned white and fallen off in great tufts next to the body. 
he was missing one of his legs, and all the bones appeared to be broken in the other. The leg was a deep black and purple, with splotches of green. Like the rest of his body, it had tried desperately to heal itself, but was unsuccessful. The violence had been prolonged and cruel. They had never seen anything like it. But the rumbling in Matthias's stomach made his decision for him. They needed the money and the flower. He would risk his life for it if need be. He was strong and he was smart. It would be all right. It would have to be. The miller was overjoyed to have a new guardsman. They'd had several robberies in the past few years, and flour had been disappearing. A strong lad watching the granary would surely deter any burglar, the miller said. The man gave him no other guidance, and Matthias had no experience protecting anything. He was afraid he would make a mistake before he'd even begun. But the miller didn't seem like the type of man who allowed such questions, even important ones. Matthias spotted an axe stuck near the woodpile and picked it up. He made his way over to the front of the granary and stood there, as upright and intimidatingly as he could, waiting for morning to come. A small, dark shape streaked through the darkness. Matthias clutched the axe tightly. The shape darted right past him and into the nearby underbrush. He couldn't leave his post. The other nightman's body had been far away from the door. He had left the safety of the light. Matthias wouldn't do that. He felt something brush against his feet. Matthias jumped backwards, nearly losing his grip on the axe. It was a cat. In the dim moonlight, it was hard to make out the animal's features, but the long tail and small black body had given it away. He didn't think cats much liked grain, but either way, it was nothing to worry about. There was only the one. Another cat crawled out of the shadows, slinking towards the barn door. Matthias took a step backwards, his back hitting the wood. It was a very large cat, with fur so black, it seemed to swallow up the moon and torchlight. He took a deep breath. Daybreak was hours away. If he wanted to keep his job, he needed to get used to them. They were probably just hungry. Maybe they'd even take care of any rodents who went for the grain. If Matthias didn't know any better, he'd say the cats were talking. One would chuff and chirrup, turning a meow into an almost whistle-like upward inflection, as if it was asking a question. Then the other one, in perfect conversational rhythm, would sigh and chirrup back, ending in a purr, an answer. Both cats stood beside him, one staring into the darkness, the other staring at Matthias. If they talked this much, maybe they were friendly. Matthias bent down to the ground and held his hand out for the smaller cat to come near. It stared at him for a minute. He was patient. The cat started to walk away. At the last second, it turned back around and swiped at his hand. The skin tore under the creature's claw. He pulled his hand back, clutching at the wound. 
The cut went from the base of his fingers all the way to his wrist in a jagged stripe that stung and burned. He pulled his hand back to his side, wiping away some of the blood. He slowly raised himself to his feet, but then sharp pinpricks made his right calf go numb. Stifling a cry, he turned to find another cat, its yellow teeth embedded in his ankle. He tried to shoo the cat away, but it reared back and bit deeper into his leg. Matthias pulled the cat off. It took part of his ankle with it as he heaved the animal as far away from him as he could. He yelped with pain as air touched the new wound. He could hear something prowling in the distance. Matthias glanced out towards the underbrush and saw a pair of large, round, yellow eyes looking back at him, big as dinner plates. He felt a chill race down his spine. There was something about those eyes, inhuman and not, with a coldness his most primal memories told him to fear. They squinted at him, as if considering. Matthias planted his feet firmly at his post and clutched the axe defensively with both hands. He tensed, waiting for the creature to move. Several more cats approached, all black, all yowling and chirping with each other, like a crowd in the town square. He was surrounded, but he wouldn't be moved from his post. His mother was counting on him. They were only cats. He only had a second's notice before it happened. The largest creature, somewhere between the size of a house cat and a greyhound, leaped out of the underbrush. Its eyes glowed in the darkness, and the moonlight glinted off its teeth. Matthias could feel its hunger. It leapt at him quicker than seemed possible. He could only close his eyes and swing his axe desperately. He kept his eyes shut waiting for death to take him. But then, a moment passed. Then another. He took a deep breath and opened them. The creature was gone. A freshly severed human arm lay at his feet. He did not want to believe it. It seemed too strange, too ridiculous to be true. But some creature that was not a creature had attacked him, a human in animal form, a witch. There was a witch living on the miller's property, and now it would want revenge. Coming up, we meet the arm's owner and discover the true face of a monster. Now back to the story. Agatha, the miller's wife, woke with a pounding in her head and a strange phantom pain she couldn't place. She did not remember much from the night before, except for the surge of adrenaline and a peculiar fury that had wrapped itself around her. There had been hissing and black fur, her eyes glowing, feline in the mirror. Then, pain, horrible pain. She slowly lowered her eyes to her body. Three quarters of her left arm were now missing, ending in a scarred but smooth stump. Her wound should hurt, 
but it had already mended itself. She dressed, covered her new amputation with her cloak, and headed down the stairs. Just before she reached the landing, she stopped. She heard voices coming from the kitchen, the voices of men, one old and one young, her husband Noah and the new mill guard. The boy was nearly hysterical, but her husband was strangely still. She caught a glimpse of an arm on the table. She jumped up one step, barely catching the eye of her husband as he and the boy turned toward the stairs. The hardness in his gaze frightened her. Chairs squeaked. She heard rustling. They were coming. She climbed back up the stairs as quickly and quietly as she could. Her heart pounded against her chest. So hard, she was scared it would burst through her skin. The mill boy had told Noah what he'd seen. She knew her husband well. He would take the boy's word over hers. She wished she could have trusted her husband to love and protect her. But he had never understood why she loved potions and poultices, healing the sick and offering herself up to the full moon. He didn't understand the notion of white magic, and the rest of the town didn't either. They would buy her herbs and amulets in the shadows, only to condemn witchcraft in the public square the next day. It was an uneasy bargain, but it wasn't the hardest one she'd ever made. That other bargain must have landed her in this mess. She'd done it for both of them. It was why their fields survived when the neighbor's crops turned to dust, why their water wheel never broke while the millstone never split. Noah wouldn't care. He wouldn't understand. She had to get away. Agatha reached the top of the staircase. The door to her bedroom was only a few feet away. Safety was within her reach. Agatha lunged for the door and shut it behind her. There was no lock, so she had to settle for pushing their few pieces of furniture against the door. Noah said he just wanted to talk to her. He was concerned about her safety, in this life and the next. The world was dangerous for a witch. Agatha stilled. Just last week, there'd been a public execution of a woman for witchcraft. Agatha had been so careful. She only followed the white magics and gave herself up to the forces in the world she knew were good. What had happened last night? Why couldn't she remember? Who had she actually made her bargain with? No hobgoblin or fay would do such a thing. She desperately needed to stay in the present, but visions of the horrific event only days before clouded her mind. The witch hunters had tied the doomed woman's hands behind her back with rope. Agatha bundled herself in a dark cloak, doing her best to keep her head covered, her frightened eyes concealed. Rain poured down, washing the streets and soaking the stacks of kindling intended to burn the so-called witch. The woman had thanked God for showing her mercy, proving that she wasn't a witch. This only made the crowd angrier. They yelled that she must have conjured a storm. The burning would have to wait until she made her arrival in hell. They'd sewn a piece of cloth into a sack and filled it with river rocks. 
When it was finished, they had stripped the witch of her dress, leaving her naked and vulnerable to the wind and rain. They sewed the closed sack to the front of her dress. Then they manhandled her back into the dress and carried her to the bridge that overlooked the town square. Then they pushed her body into the river. The crowd watched in fiendish delight. Agatha could barely stifle her horror. She watched the woman try and fail to swim to safety. She heard her screams get swallowed by the water. She saw the movement slow until they grew still. The fervor of the crowd died down. The show was over. Agatha, on the other hand, did not move. Long after the villagers had carried the witch's body away to an unmarked grave, she still watched the water, searching for hope, wishing that her sister in magic would rise up, reborn. But there was nothing in the water but silt and a few stray fish. The woman was dead. There was no bringing her back. And now, Noah would wish the same fate upon her. She could almost picture his smile through the door, shining white teeth, not a hint of malevolence on his face. But she knew now that it lived in his heart. He would see her dead. One way or another, he would make it so. She could still see the shadow of his feet under the door. He must have sent the millboy away. Her husband told her not to lie to him any longer. He rammed his body against the door, cursing her for putting up a barrier between them. She went over to the window. The townsfolk were already gathering towards their house. Unlike last weekend, there were no clouds overhead. The sky was clear. The air was dry. The perfect weather for a fire. The banging on her door stopped. Agatha hadn't expected him to give up so quickly. Perhaps she could make a run for it while he went for help. The window was too small for her to climb out. She listened at the door, wanting to make sure she was alone before she removed her barricade. The smell of smoke wafted through the gaps in the doorway. Their house was made of wood. She tried to shift the furniture, but it would not budge. A ladder touched the windowsill. Her heart leapt. Perhaps someone was coming to save her. A former patient, maybe. Someone who understood that she'd only been trying to help. But there was no rescue. Her new visitor brought a torch to the frame of the window. Smoke was already clouding the room, making it harder for her to breathe. She was surrounded. Her husband must have set the fire before he walked down the stairs, burning her alive in the home they'd built together. She screamed for justice, clawing at the bedroom window with her one remaining hand. But the growing crowd outside only seemed to enjoy her distress all the more. Her throat and eyes burned. She would die alone, suffocating, burning, melting. No, she ran to the door, yanking her barricade aside with all her strength. She could run. She could try to run. Then she realized something was behind her. A small black cat 
was sitting in the corner of the room. It made no sense. Agatha wondered if she was hallucinating. She heard another sound behind her by the door. Another cat, bigger, staring at her with bright yellow eyes. Somehow they frightened her far more than the encroaching flames. What shall we do, she heard the cat say, if only in her mind. The larger cat seemed to smile. Wait till he comes, it whispered back, its eyes never leaving Agatha's form. Agatha did not know who he was. She did not know what he wanted, but she deeply suspected it was her. Another cat appeared behind her. It asked again, What shall we do? Wait till he comes. Wait. 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 Then he arrived, and Agatha wished for the mercy of death by fire. The Witch Who Was Hurt derives from a North German tale about a tailor who agrees to watch a mill overnight after a series of thefts, only to be surrounded by malevolent cats who appear to be intent on entering the granary. They begin to brew some kind of potion. When the tailor intervenes, the cats attack him. He manages to wound one of the creatures, and they retreat. In the morning, the tailor and Miller discover that the Miller's wife is a witch who transforms into a cat at night. The story ends there. What was done to the witch has been left intentionally unsaid. There are several familiar elements here for European folklorists, including a strong connection to fears of the bubonic plague. The steadily increasing number of threats in the form of the black cats evokes the anxiety of an epidemic that you can't understand or contain. The tailor never learns why or how he must prevent the cats from completing their strange ritual. He simply gets lucky. The bubonic plague, or black death, was spread via fleas on rats. The cats ate the infected rats and became infected themselves. People killed or drove out the rats' natural predators, allowing the vermin population to grow exponentially. The rise of the plague epidemic also coincided with a greater interest in the supernatural, and frightened mobs were quick to search for a witch or a demon who could swiftly be dispatched in order to save them all. Black cats and ravens became known as common witches' familiars, and to this day, the stigma still persists. Black cats are some of the least adopted pets in animal shelters. The origins of the European tale are relatively straightforward, but the witch who was hurt underwent a very interesting transformation when it crossed the Atlantic. While the cats in the European tales sometimes speak, inviting their guests to gamble or play nine pins, the American version includes the addition of the question and answer dialogue as the cats deliberate on the right time to strike. The witch drops out of the story entirely in the American telling, as does any sort of resolution for the protagonist or explanation for the cat's ominous behavior. Instead, we're left with the chilling bare bones of the tale, 
a lone man surrounded by cats of ever-increasing size. Instead of acting as a guard or trying to face his fears, he's often only seeking shelter in a storm. When things get too ominous, he flees back out into the rain again, and the story ends. The older versions of the legend keep the cause of the cat's delay vague, and whether he is a demonic spirit, a fae, or another black magic user is never explained. But the American version gives the long-awaited visitor a name, usually Martin, though Emmett is also common in tellings from the American South. The Southern iteration adds one other compelling new component to the story. While the Old World versions involve a brave fool facing down the cats, the Dixieland approach often stars a traveling preacher. He does his very best to ignore the cats by reading his Bible, but even his faith isn't enough to last the night, and he eventually flees back out into the rain just like his secular counterpart. While the newer versions of The Witch Who Was Hurt sometimes remove its title character entirely, the main kernel of horror is still there. The growing dread of being surrounded by creatures who can harm us is primal. The black cat's ability to blend into the darkness can cause us to feel like prey rather than the apex predator humans are used to being. But there's really no reason to fear a black cat as long as it's a normal size and isn't found in numbers. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back tomorrow with a new urban legend and on Thursday with a new haunted place. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at Parcast, and Twitter, at Parcast Network. Until tomorrow. Don't believe some of the things you hear. Believe all of them. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Kenny Hobbs, production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind, additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Rache. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>